great to see you all tonight. It's uh, exciting to have uh, Los Angeles Theater Works here for two nights. Uh, I'm Todd Wetzel, the Executive Director of Communications, and uh, about a year or so ago when we were making the decision to bring this production of Los Angeles Theater Works here, uh, you know, it struck us as a particularly resonant piece historically, but we also felt that there were a lot of aspects of resonance today, and that added additional motivation for us to, to bring it. I, I don't think we were quite prepared for the additional resonance that's even been added <laughs> in recent months. And so um, what we've done through tonight, nonetheless, is to continue in the great convocations tradition of creating discourse around the performances that we bring. And so we are so pleased to have the opportunity to bring uh, some of Purdue's uh, excellent faculty into a, a place where we can help open a few lines of inquiry both historically and, and perhaps shed some light on some of the resonance for today. So um, we have a, a couple of prepared questions to, to get things rolling and have a, a bit of a panel discussion uh, style interaction. And, uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure that if you have questions, uh, the floor is open uh, once we get through the initial set. So I'll, I'll signal to you that we're ready to go. And feel free to add in. We'll keep going, but uh, feel free to jump in. It'd be great to hear your, your thoughts and questions. Um, but joining us today from my uh, far left, uh, Associate Professor of History, William Gray. Uh, next is uh, Daniel Frank, Professor of Philosophy and the Director of the Jewish Studies Program. We have Rebecca klein Peshava, Associate Professor of History. And last but not least, Anne-Marie Clark, Associate Professor of Political Science. Please join me in welcoming you. start off with uh, Professor Gray. Uh, uh, well, one of the goals of the Nuremberg trials was to inform the defeated Germans about the extent of the crimes committed during the Third Reich. Why did so many Germans resist this lesson at the time and dismiss the outcome as victor's justice? Well, Todd, this gives me an opportunity to maybe jump in and say, first, what are some of the overall goals of the Allied powers. Uh, and uh, by the way, a quick aside, um, uh, it's great to see uh, a nice crowd here this evening. Uh, I commend your ability to focus on historical events at a time <laughs> when uh, the present is so contested. Um, uh, hopefully tonight will be something of a respite over the next few hours for you. Um, so the uh, historian Timothy Garden Ash uh, describes the Nuremberg trials as a kind of, an example of, um, of uh, restitutive justice as a form of justice that's intended to try to uh, work through crimes committed and prepare the way for a different society. Uh, in that respect, uh, the Nuremberg trials were intended to, uh, of course, punish key and, and symbolic perpetrators, uh, also to isolate them from society, to prevent their continuing social residence uh, it was also intended uh, to inform the public as the question addresses, and I'll speak to that briefly. Uh, one final goal, though, that's relatively unusual about the Nuremberg Trials is the desire to create precedents, uh, to try and, um, in particular, outlaw and mark as unacceptable conducts by a sovereign state within its own boundaries, something which international law up to that point had not addressed. 
So the pedagogical aspect of the trials would seem obvious to anybody who looks at a library shelf today. You can go to Purdue's library and find that the, the main trials conducted in 45 and 46 by the four military victors of World War II, the US, France, Britain, and the USSR, you can find these transcripts contain all sorts of documentation about German crimes. Furthermore, the United States went and followed up with 12 additional trials, uh, putting several, uh, they continued until 1949 actually, uh, putting generals and concentration camp doctors and many other individuals from Germany on trial. So you would think that this massive documentation would have persuaded people on the ground in Germany of, of, of the, the extent of crimes which were carried out um, perhaps by people they knew, but at the very least by people who claimed to represent their society. Uh, and yet that's not the response that the public gave. Especially in 45 and 46, the German public rejects almost across the board the message of the Nuremberg trials. It's quite striking. And I think that this offers some lessons for us, perhaps, as we think about how people process information and how people respond to information that's unwelcome to them. You might have had the experience in recent months of trying to present a factual case for positions that you hold strongly and find that someone doesn't want to engage with those issues. In a similar way, the German public, and, and I hate to speak so broadly about the German public, of course there are uh, thoughtful editors and uh, returning emigres and, and people who were voices in favor of the Nuremberg program. But an awful lot of Germans basically put their fingers in their ears. And when they read newspapers, which contained accounts of the trial, what they would say is, well, you know, who licenses those newspapers? The Allied powers. And they control the distribution of paper. So I don't believe a thing that's written on this piece of paper. So the level of psychological resistance to the outcome of the Nuremberg trials was extremely extensive. Uh, this continued into the early 1950s. Um, there was a massive public campaign to rebrand the war criminals as uh, a, a sealed in, uh, justice at the trials as uh, convicted by war. Kriegsverurteilten uh, instead of Kriegsverbrecher. So it's, a, it's a, a linguistic play in the German which takes people from being war criminals to being judged by war, meaning essentially not criminals. So the process by which Germans came to uh, uh, change perspective quite fully, I, I think Dan Frank will be speaking to this a little bit more, but it is kind of a lesson for those of us who want, and it's a frustrating lesson for those of us who want today to present evidence to a public and say, this is, these are, these are facts. Uh, you will not always find people willing to accept the basis of conversation, uh, especially when there's a power disparity, as was the case uh, with the Allies at the end of World War II. Thank you. Professor Frank, as a follow-up, what changed in German society to make later generations more open to the massive amounts of evidence produced by the Nuremberg prosecutors? The question um, immediately alludes to the fact of temporal progression. History moves on. 
and uh, that's a large part of the answer to, to this question. A number of the points I want to make actually follow up nicely from points that Will just made. Um, again, I would invite everybody to just consider in his or her own life situation how over time um, there might be a diminution of a psychological denial, an immediate psychological denial of something that you don't want to uh, allow. In other words, initially you'll be resistant to something that is horrible, uh, not thinking that you're involved or whatever. But as time proceeds, you might be less resistant to that. And so as time moves on, as, as Todd said, in later generations, the first thing I guess I want to say is there's less of an immediate denial, psychological denial, that you were involved or even that something happened. Um, a couple more points that I want to make. Once again, just we're talking about as the generations move forward, as we move from the 40s to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, um, the perpetrators got old and they died. Um, so as time proceeded, the, uh, the actual um, individuals who were involved, their numbers were diminished. And to that extent, it provided an opening for people to uh, be more responsive and less resistant in ways that I've been suggesting. Um, a third point I guess I want to make as to why uh, German society at later date was more open to learning uh, from the massive amounts of evidence that were produced is in the late 80s, as we all know, the wall came down. And that's symbolic uh, of a lot of things. Uh, one thing, it's clearly uh, not even symbolic, but actually the case uh, that it created a, a relative era of openness. Uh, and with openness comes the capacity for self-reflection. And so presumably uh, with the uh, openness and self-reflection, people were able to take stock of what had happened at this point now some 35 or 30 years before, 35 years before. So again, as time moves on, there's the possibility for greater self-reflection. Um, the most important point I guess I want to offer is a historical point, but also I think a conceptual linguistic point in a way, is that, and I think you'll hear this from my colleagues uh, to my left, actually to my left, but uh, <laughs> perhaps another <laughs> But in any event, um, what you'll hear is the, what the Nuremberg trials, as best as I can tell, were, were all about is, if not the invention, at least the promulgation of a rich notion of human rights, a rich notion of crimes against humanity. Um, those categories, human rights, crime against, crimes against humanity, became legitimate categories and a context and indeed a language that was rendered operational for the first time. Will alluded to, I think, Early on in his comments, he spoke about, I think, about the notion of human rights as being not really operational. It was sort of uh, uh, in potentia. It was there, but not really uh, invoked. But after the Nuremberg trial, the Nuremberg trials, that became a language, a set of categories that one could appeal to. And once that was out there, um, Germans could, how do I want to put this, really understand what had been done 
uh, the heinousness of it, the guilt that they should feel. So as time moved on, as I conclude now, as time moved on, and uh, a new language, a new set of terms, a new set of concepts was out there, people could uh, begin to understand in ways they couldn't understand before, in fact, what exactly had gone on and how they were implicated in that. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Professor Feinpaisley, uh, as a precursor to subsequent war crimes trials and people's tribunals, what was new or distinctive about the influence of the Nuremberg trials on the understanding of the individual rather than the collective rights protections? Thank you. I also want to begin by thanking you all for coming out tonight and to make a quick note that um, everyone on this panel is affiliated with the new human rights program at Purdue, which has begun um, and has a number of events that we'll be publicizing and hope that you will attend. Um, but in thinking about this question, this, this is an integral question when we think about human rights developments and rights protections. The dichotomy between individual protections on a universal level and group or particularistic protections. And this is a thread that runs through um, all of these comments. And I'd, I'd like to begin answering that larger question which was just posed with reference to a New York Times review of the film Judgment at Nuremberg on which the, the play is based uh, that came out in 1961 which states that the main issue depicted in the film was, quote, how much responsibility and guilt the individual must bear for crimes committed by him on the order and in the interest of the state. In other words, the film attempted to come to explore individual conscience, collective guilt, and behavior, issues that by 1961 were part and parcel of the ongoing public conversation about the war and its consequences. All of this was triggered by the reverberating effect of the unprecedented Nuremberg trials, that year-long set of trials beginning November 20th, 1945, with over 403 sessions, with, um, uh, and, and verdict issues um, appropriately, um, verdict issued appropriately on October 1st, 1946, which was Yom Kippur that year, the Day of Atonement on the Jewish calendar. Um, the trials that took place at Nuremberg overshadowed the many nearly simultaneous trials that took place across the European continent, which brought on large-scale soul-searching in an unprecedented fashion. One of the reasons that the Nuremberg trials gained so much attention, we learn, is because they were the, the best organized, um, there were the most press there, there were over 300 press journalists at the Nuremberg trials, and the courtrooms were heated, <laughs> thanks to the American taxpayers. Um, by December 14, 1961, when the film premiered in Berlin, the Berlin Wall had already been built by the Soviets. Adolf Eichmann would be sentenced in Israel for his war crimes the next day. The so-called human rights revolution of the late 1940s and 50s was already in play. The UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights had been ratified in 1948, as was Raphael Lemkin's Genocide Convention. 
And both of those pieces of legislation exemplified the shift away from earlier forms of collective international institutionalization of rights protections to individual rights protections. So the focus on minority rights that had come into being with the withdrawing, the redrawing of the map, withdrawing of the map, um, of Europe in the aftermath of the First World War, most notably the Polish minorities treaties and variations on it, which were adapted by the new and transformed countries of Central and Eastern Europe, had been discredited. Those group rights protections had been discredited. The system of international group rights protections had collapsed in the interwar period. The only country which had been able to successfully take advantage of those rights protections and exploited the interwar system was Germany on behalf of the German ethnic minority in interwar Czechoslovakia as part of the dismantling of the Czechoslovak Republic. The focus on minority rights in the aftermath of the Second World War um, put the emphasis on human rights as an individual. There was a supplantation of group rights with individual rights. Richard Goldstone, the UN war crimes investigator, noted that prior to World War II, the subjects of international law were not individuals but nations. Individual human beings had no standing, but the Holocaust changed that. Even more so, it was the wide public attention brought to the atrocities of the Nazis and their helpers and the emphasis on individual accountability espoused by the IMT, the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, which brought all this to light. And with that, it came to questions of vindication and justice. Um, a scholar of human rights writes that the Nuremberg trials and the Tokyo trials, to a certain extent, vindicated the persecuted with their indictment of war criminals by an international tribunal and set a new kind of precedent that no one is immune from punishment for war crimes. They were tried as individuals and the emphasis was on individual responsibility. So we come from that side, thinking in terms of the perpetrators and their individual accountability, to a question of justice. And the question was, in this case, um, how can justice be served? What can the world possibly do? Um, and this reflects on the, the world is guilty concept, which came out too in the film Judgment at Nuremberg. The never again concept comes out in this question too. How can we make a never again happen and not just be a cliche? And this kind of question of justice shifts the focus from the perpetrators to the victims of the Nazis and their helpers. So in other words, what we're coming to here is a revolution in, in terms of human rights and how rights protections are imagined. So although, a scholar has argued, the human rights revolution did not miraculously arise from the ashes of the Holocaust, there were many more factors at play there, the mountains of documentary evidence produced in the Nuremberg trials brought the Holocaust into close contact with the human rights project of the late 40s. Namely, there was a striking awareness of the plight of the bare individual confronted by the machinery of the state. 
So the focus also turns to that plight of the individual, stripped of nationality, stripped of citizenship, who is left to fend for themselves against the machinery of the state. The Nuremberg trials, in fact, became the first distinctive international effort outside of Jewish circles to grasp the awful significance of the murder of European <coughs> Jews. And it was an attempt to universalize the Holocaust without negating its historical significance. Uh, Hannah Arendt spoke of a new kind of crime, which was formulated at Nuremberg, as the crime against humanity, the crime against human status, the crime against the very nature of mankind. When the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was ratified on December 10, 1948, the preamble stated that the disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in the barbarous acts which have outraged the consciousness of mankind. Um, Rene Cassin um, had hoped with the passing of the Universal Declaration that the overall achievement of it could be its ability to redress the monstrous acts of the past while offering a monument of positive progress directed toward the future. And with that, I, I want to end with a concluding question that I've thought about quite a bit as this election season drags on, um, which is, as somebody who does teach the Holocaust and Genocide course here, um, have we been teaching this wrong? Why aren't the lessons working? Um, how do we adjust the methods of our pedagogy, the questions that we're asking, the way that we relate to our students for the age in which we live? How is it possible that these kinds of accusations and wholesale group vindications are made? Um, how can we best serve a moral imperative that's raised by these issues? Sorry, Brian. No, thank you. Terrific. Uh, Professor Clark, um, beyond being a specific forum bringing Nazis to justice, what implications do the Nuremberg trials have for universal human rights? Thank you. Um, as a political scientist, I was hoping that I'd learn a lot from the panel, and I certainly did, and I, it's really enriching to hear um, from my colleagues in other disciplines as they talk about Nuremberg. For me, it gave me a chance, uh, since my field really is a, the study of modern human rights and how the ideas emerged and um, causes of violations, et cetera, it gave me a chance to look back to some of the origins of ideas about human rights that, that came out of Nuremberg. Um, so besides being an important symbolic event, as my colleagues have alluded to, the Nuremberg trials set two big precedents for how we can now think about human rights in peacetime. The first was the principle of individual accountability for violations, which Rebecca alluded to. And the second is the formal category of crimes against humanity um, in international law. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about some specifics of 
international law that came out of Nuremberg and maybe end with bringing us up to the present a little bit. So Nuremberg, as we know, was a military tribunal. Nuremberg dealt with war crimes, although it, def you know, it defined these crimes as crimes against humanity. And what we now think of as global human rights principles really had not been articulated very well at that time, 1946. Um, the, the real expression of human rights in the Universal Declaration and a lot of law that followed that was really produced by political contestation um, all along the way didn't emerge until shortly afterward and mostly at the United Nations. And, and there, Nuremberg was seen as an important precedent. So at the first session of the UN, that was in 1946, Nuremberg was specifically mentioned in efforts to declare genocide as a crime against international law. The final judgment at Nuremberg happened in 1946. You said October, right, Rebecca? Mm -hmm. And in December 1946, the UN adopted a resolution to affirm the principles of international law recognized by the Nuremberg Charter. The resolution stated the importance of codifying offenses against the peace and security of mankind. And this was the 95th resolution adopted by the UN. A resolution on genocide was adopted next and um, on the same day. And it delineated genocide as a crime and called for the development of a draft treaty on its prevention and punishment, saying that perpetrators of genocide were punishable, quote, whether private individuals, public officials, or statesmen. So these were two really early kind of tying the idea of accountability and, and crimes against humanity to the Nuremberg principles. And as the UN Commission on Human Rights started to meet, Soon thereafter, its first job was to draw up this Declaration of International Human Rights or International Declaration of Human Rights, a kind of list of what should be considered the human rights that we have. And there's evidence that Nuremberg figured here too. Um, one of the things that Eleanor Roosevelt and her colleagues on the commission did was correspond with world experts, all kinds including um, international lawyers because they were interested in thinking about how findings at Nuremberg could also inform the meaning and content of global human rights. Um, so one last sort of um, part that I want to contribute is if you fast forward to now, the current era, um, it's really not just crimes in armed conflict, but also certain kinds of human rights violations that are committed in peacetime and within individual countries, they can now be charged as crimes against humanity. So the reach of individual liability for such crimes is much broader now. Um, and it's instantiated in the statute of the International Criminal Court, which states that crimes against humanity consist of a whole bunch of different kinds of acts like torture, disappearances, forced deportations, et cetera, 
when conducted by the state against foreign pop, against civilian civilian populations, and so um, you know human rights built on Nuremberg, but went beyond that to a more general conception of what should be protected, as as I think um, Rebecca hinted, and. Um, just one summary comment is that, you know, we know, unfortunately, serious violations of human rights guarantees still happen, but international criminal jurisdiction can be now applied in a much wider set of cases than was possible 70 years ago. Um, and actually, the bulk of prosecutions for human rights violations have not been, in, in recent times, have not been these high-level tribunals or even the criminal court, but they've taken place in domestic courts across the globe. And at least one political science study shows um, that when perpetrators are brought to justice, it does appear to have a, a deterrent effect, not only for countries in which trials take place, but also in neighboring countries. Um, which means that survivors and relatives of those harmed by human rights violations have more legal recourse to justice, and that's a, a legacy of the Nuremberg trials. Thank you. We, we've spent uh, about a half hour really sort of investigating the rise of uh, individual rights out of the, the collective rights, so maybe I'll use my uh, exercise, my moderator imperative here, prerogative rather, to go to one of the, the questions we've talked about, um, which in the script, uh, Harry Yaming argued that the crisis in Germany made supposedly temporary measures um, that subverted justice seem necessary. Do you agree that civil liberties can suspend, be suspended for the good of the nation? How does this argument apply to the anti-communist McCarthy hearings of the 1950s, or even perhaps more recent uh, kinds of commentary that we might be hearing uh, today, certainly relative to immigration policy or practices or proposed practices. <laughs> sure. Well, I have to say I'm not sure that very many of us would be advocates of uh, um, uh, non-constitutional means. Um, one of the paradoxes, though, of uh, Nazi Germany is that uh, many of its actions took place within a legal framework, was, which was defended by courts. Uh, so um, on one level, one has to uh, try and convince people that those courts were somehow not still working. Those same judges, by the way, continued to practice law uh, to the end of their careers. Uh, they were not disbarred at the end of World War II, Nuremberg or no. Um, but in terms of uh, uh, states of emergency, uh, the German Constitution allowed broad powers for a president to suspend constitutional procedures. And that was already used for several years before the appointment of Adolf Hitler. And it had undermined the principle of parliamentary accountability. So Adolf Hitler is installed then in March of 1933 as a dictator by the parliament, which votes with a two-thirds uh, uh, mandate to give him uh, dictatorial powers. Uh, and and uh, that provision, I think, is impossible in other countries' contexts. I don't think that we have any kind of provision, a constitutional ruling that would allow for such suspension, uh, thankfully, in my view. Did 
none of you have any other comments for the other panelists as a result of the responses to the opening comments, thoughts, or reflections? At the risk of taking too much time, I did want to jump in with something here. One of the paradoxes, in my view, of the Nuremberg trials is that uh, the most resonant aspect of the trials is crimes against humanity, for sure. But that was the least successful point when it came to trying to argue guilt on the part of the, the defendants at Nuremberg. And one reason for that is that other categories of indictment at Nuremberg, including uh, the crime of committing aggressive war and the crime of conspiring to commit aggressive war. Uh, these were categories, and, and, and finally war crimes committed by military figures. These were categories that were established already. The implication, though, is that crimes against humanity were not yet defined under German law or anybody else's law in 1945 and 46. So this gave those opponents of the Nuremberg trials a clear license to say, wait, we're being tried for crimes that weren't defined as crimes in our time. And therefore, these proceedings are completely invalid. Now, I don't mean to embrace that point, but it, it, for, for people who were as legally minded as many Germans were, uh, it, it, it is a paradox, though, that this ends up becoming such a successful uh, re result of the trial, because it was the, the, by far the, the least neat aspect of the legal case. Yeah, I mean, let me just, uh, in a sense, say that again. I mean, one of the claims, one of the responses that uh, came from the German side is, you know, there were no laws that we broke. Uh, crimes against humanities were not, uh, was not established as a law, and if there's no law, there's no guilt. So they hid behind that. Uh, the, the other thing one might remember, and I, I think if I read about the play itself, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of resonate with this, is the role of the Russians. The Russians were one of the four uh, judges at the trial, the Russians, French, Brits, and, uh, and Americans. Well, as you all know, for a while, the Russians and the, uh, the, the Soviets and the Nazis had a pact. And there was a very tricky business that uh, at some points when you made claims against the Germans for doing heinous things, well, you dost protest too much, one might say, to the Russians. So there was a very tricky business uh, between, you know, who were the judges and who was on trial. So in some sense, uh, the Russians had to be sidelined in a way while yet playing the active role against the Germans, their former allies. We also have to remember, as far as context, goes the as Dan was bringing up with the, the Russians we have to remember that Germany was divided into these four zones of occupation um, by the Allied powers as was Austria and not only were there the people who had lived through the war in the country and were facing this this new situation of being under under foreign occupation themselves um, but there were hundreds of thousands of displaced persons streaming into Germany, Austria, and Italy. Uh, these were considered the DP countries of the post-war era. This lasted from the end of the war until 52, with the 1949 being the year of the greatest repatriation or migration out. 
from Germany um, and the other DP countries. And there was, again, this balancing act going on um, because the DPs were coming from um, all over Eastern and Central Europe, places that had been under German occupation, including Germans, ethnic Germans, who had been um, kicked out, uh, expelled from Czechoslovakia and Poland after the war. And there were Germans who were looking to this case also and thinking of the ways in which they'd suffer and in which their, their ethnics, their kin had suffered during the war, um, the way they were being treated after the war. Um, there's also a question of balance um, in the countries between the, the treatment down to the very basic brass tax of rations. We have to remember that there was nothing. Europe was destroyed. Um, there was no infrastructure. And uh, a great deal of the, the food supply itself was coming from the Allies. And one of the questions was, um, how much food does each group receive based on um, its wartime activity um, and its participation in the post-war order? Um, and so this also became a concern with how that new post-war order would look, and justice, in fact, seemed to be meted out in, in the view of the general public in terms of calories, in terms of grams, in terms of peanut butter, right? So this is something also to keep in mind. There was the question of, well, how do we keep the Germans on our side as Germany moved from being foe to friend? in the post-war era as the Cold War accelerated. Um, was there time for, for me to rebuttal? Um, Make sure we open the floor for a minute or two as well. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a question that Dan's, your comments, raised for me in talking about um, how what changed in later years for the Germans and that it was a temporal progression, a reduction of denial um, and this kind of denial you see in pretty much every society that's had high, large-scale um, human rights violations. But in the area I study most, which is Latin America, a lot of that tends to be turned around by the protests of relatives and survivors. And it occurs to me that um, Germany you know, was pretty successful at deporting the threats to the regime. And I wondered if you all, maybe we don't have time to get to it, but whether um, that would have make a difference. I think it would make a difference in terms of how Germany began to deal with this after the war. We'll let that question marinate okay. for a second. Yes. Yeah. So I just listened to all this. Um, I had a grandfather came over to this country in 1890, and he was he was he was taught at uh, what is now OSU at Stillwater, Oklahoma, at Oklahoma A and M, and he gave a little lecture about the Kaiser's birthday and how wonderful it was. This is before World War One started. He almost lost his job. <laughs> and he, anyway, that's a long story, but I have the papers that show this. And I'm thinking also Germany was, as you all know, being historians, was not, it wasn't a democracy for very long. Bismarck only unified the actual German states into a country in the late 19th century, sometime mid-19th century, something like that. And then Weimar, the Weimar democracy was very weak, and the communists and the fascists were fighting. 
So what I'm hoping is our country, with this crap that's going on right now and the threats that are being made, we don't have that kind of history. We've had democracy for a heck of a longer time than Germany did. That's my comment. Thank you. Question in the back. Yeah, I'm just curious about the question that you raised and Good. There, have been, there has been a sea change in the way Holocaust is, has been taught. Um, one of those sea changes can be seen in the way the Holocaust is in fact taught here, which is as a Holocaust and genocide course, um, to move from particular to broader implications um, that bring us through, um, when I teach it, I go from Armenia uh, to um, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, and think about implications for today. Um, think about psychology. This is one of the ways in which it's changed, is to think more expansively about the, the lessons of, uh, of persecution of the group. And in fact, it is also a change from thinking about this more traditional machinery of genocide to the gradual step-by-step -step changes that occur. Um, for instance, um, thinking about the kind of rhetoric that's used to target and identify out a group from society, um, the dehumanizing language which is used, the application of essential characteristics to an entire group. Um, and so the, these are the things, without going into further detail for want of time, but um, there have been changes, and I've thought about that quite a lot, and I think that in the way I'm going to approach it in the next semester is working through those early stages in more detail, where the greatest tragedy occurs not, uh, no, it's difficult to make these comparisons, but the greatest tragedy happens when there is this social death at the beginning, when people lose their jobs because of who they are, when people are, are singled out and, and defined out of the wider society at, in terms of their humanity. Uh, Rebecca's answer um, points in a direction which I think uh, uh, historians could perhaps uh, draw a little bit more explicitly on uh, in our work and, and perhaps in working in culture more broadly, and that is a focus on stories and human experiences. Uh, one, uh, one key moment in the German acceptance of the crimes of their own nation came with the viewing, of all things, of an American miniseries called Holocaust. And Holocaust was a big hit in the United States, but it, in 1979, aired in Germany, and it was an enormous, enormous success. Uh, it uh, led to a sea change in how many Germans approached the past, and it was because it followed the story of a single Jewish family. And that was so much more relatable. Now, I have to say that as scholars, this is troubling in a way because it suggests that works of fiction uh, are perhaps a better teaching tool in some ways than our attempts to analyze and present material in a systematic matter. I, I think that ideally there's a symbiosis. 
perhaps uh, tonight's events are, are an example of, of that. Uh, you are, are all, after all, gathered because you're going to see a play in order to learn about the past. And the, the, the compelling acting and the uh, drama of the story is surely one of the reasons you wanted to go. Of course, accompanied perhaps by our um, uh, humble panel here, uh, we hope that uh, you will be that much more armed with uh, some uh, uh, background as well to appreciate it. But, you know, I think in general, uh, we could stand to try to frame our stories for the public in a way that emphasizes the story of history or the story of human rights uh, or the philosophy, I suppose, uh, as a story uh, for the public. That's great. I, I would like to, I, I think it's easy for us to imagine that we could go quite a, a ways longer in, in this discussion because there are so many facets yet that we haven't touched. But um, I will certainly emphasize um, by footnotes uh, Professor Gray's point that uh, we certainly think in convocations and in the cultural landscape in general of the power of creative human expression to reflect upon our condition, uh, to teach us many things, uh, and to see it, whether it's from the individual level or the collective level, and to experience community in powerful ways. And so um, I think this moment right here is certainly emblematic and indicative of the kind of community we seek to have and of the work we like to do. So. Uh, with that said, please join me in thanking our uh, distinguished panelists.